Hey everybody, it's so good to see all of y'all out there. Let me put these on so I can see you a little bit better. Uh, I want to add my welcome to Jonathan's. Thank you so much for being here tonight on this drizzly and cool Sunday evening. And uh, as much as we'd love to welcome you after the service today and get to know you a little bit, we, because of the, the, the rising numbers, as he said, we're going to be jetting right after this service. So I want to make a special appeal to you. If you're visiting with us, you're here for the first time, we haven't had a chance to meet you. We would love to connect with you uh, this week. So please do give us uh, either using the card you received on the way in here or using our website, which is up and available to you right now, some sort of contact info so that we can reach out to you after today. We'd love the chance to, to follow up on what you're going to hear about Jesus in this sermon, uh, on what you've experienced already in the service today, and, and to answer questions you may have about him or about what it would look like to get plugged into our church. So please do give us a chance to do that. Uh, I want to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. This is the section of God's Word that we'll consider for the next little bit of our time together. Luke chapter 16, we're gonna be in, uh, in verses one to nine. Uh, recently, I read an article on the surging sales of personal underground bunkers. I'm real tempted right now to just stop right here and ask you guys to raise your hand if you've got one, but I'm not gonna do it. I would appreciate if you shoot me an email later and just tell me that you're one of the people I'm about to talk about here for the next little bit. Personal underground bunkers, booming industry. As you might imagine, 2020 has been a banner year for the personal underground bunker industry. More and more people are preparing themselves for the end of the world as we know it. Uh, earlier this year, in what you might call a super fortuitous bit of timing, a sociologist named Bradley Garrett published a whole book on this phenomenon called Bunker, Building for the End Times. In this book, he talks about what he calls preppers and the bunker salesmen that he calls dread merchants to chart out how it works and even more, what draws people into the bunker market. He does interview after interview with, the, with, with people who are selling and buying these things. He tracks where they are and what types of complexes that exist for these things. I didn't know, maybe you did. You could actually be part of a bunker community at the end of all time. Um, where there are actually luxury units to be purchased and some that come equipped with actual projection screens of your former view from your house that you had before the end of all things, uh, where, where you, can, you can see it, to remember it, project it on your wall. I'm not gonna spoil it for you. There's some amazing details, even the little bit I read of it. It is an interesting and an apparently expanding subculture out there that I just, honestly, I can't really relate to it. Call me a cockeyed optimist, if you will. That's probably true. I've just never felt the urge to prepare on that scale. I'm mostly just amused by it, by the vibrancy of this subculture and by the motives that drive people into it. But I'll give these folks this. If I can't relate to what, what, what drives them into these bunkers, there is something I respect about them. These folks believe that they know what's coming. And they're prepared. They put their money where their mouth is, so to speak. They see the future. And they're confident enough about it to change their present. I hope their view of the future is way, way, way off. I hope that there's even some foolishness in some of the more extreme versions of it. I expect that there is. 
But if they're foolish at one level, at another level, there's a kind of wisdom. A wisdom to act in light of what you believe. If you see something's coming and do nothing, what does that say? Well, it says you just probably actually don't see it, probably actually don't believe it. And, 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 and this is the point Jesus confronts us with in the parable we're gonna consider together tonight. The, the view that we have of the future will show up in our present one way or another. So the question is, does what you say you believe about the future actually affect your life now? If it doesn't, it could be your belief isn't what, it, what you think it is. There's an encouragement and a challenge in the parable that Jesus tells this evening. Uh, though I want to attach a bit of a warning label to it. It's, uh, it's, it's not easy to get there. It's a more complicated parable than most of the ones we've looked at so far. Uh, and one of my most trusty New Testament scholars says that this is one of the most difficult of Jesus' parables to understand, quote. And another guy goes even further to call it, of all the parables that Jesus taught, the parable of the shrewd manager, that's this one, the parable of the shrewd manager is the most puzzling. I think he's right. I've never been more puzzled by a parable than the one that we're gonna to read together tonight. And because of that, here's how I think we gotta break it down. I think we gotta approach it a little bit differently than we've approached most of them. I think we need to get the, the building blocks of this story down first. We're gonna start with how the story goes. We're gonna lay out each block then we're going to zoom out and say, what does the story mean? Because once the, once the bricks have all been organized properly, then hopefully a picture will have emerged that's clear enough to us at that point. And only then will we turn to consider how the story challenges us. So three steps this evening. We're going to talk about how the story goes. We're going to talk about what this story means. And we're going to talk about how this story challenges us. I want to begin by reading these nine verses to you. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. Picking up in Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Friends, this is God's word to us. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master's taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I want to start with how the story goes. Uh, let's get these building blocks of the story laid out in front of us before we step back and see what they build. 
Here's number one. There's four building blocks I want to pull to your attention. The first one is the manager gets caught. We're not told what this manager's been doing with his master's money. All we're told is that he's been wasting it and somebody's turned rat on him. The master must have seen enough evidence from whatever charges were brought to him to be convinced that satisfied by what he's seen doesn't even ask the man to give an account or defend himself. He just simply says, turn over your books. You can no longer be manager. End of story. The manager got caught. Next building block, my personal favorite, the manager faces facts. The manager faces facts. The manager says to himself, verse three, what shall I do since my master's taking the management away from me? I think this is my personal favorite part of the, part of the parable because I can see myself in this guy in a way. You know, he doesn't try to defend himself. He knows he's caught. He knows there's no denying it. So he asks what to do because he had himself a really good job. Relatively speaking, it would have been lucrative in its time. Very hard to come by, especially if you've already been guilty of wasting another master's possession. So this guy knows the writing is on the wall. He's in trouble. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. Basically, this guy's got a laser-like focus in his skill set and can't do anything outside of it, like, much like yours truly. And he knows if, if he can't come up with something, he's in trouble. Building block three. The manager devises a plan. You might call it a scheme. A shrewd and effective dodge. I've decided what to do, he says to himself, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. His retirement plan is to make sure that everybody owes him. It's a tit-for-tat hospitality culture. This could actually work. So he goes around from client to client, from debtor to debtor, and just between them, man to man, he cuts down the size of their debt. It costs him nothing but the breath that he uses to say what he says. It saves these debtors huge sums of money. One of the things that commentaries are helpful in pulling to the surface here is just what size these debts are. They're massive. In some cases, these debts are multiple years of, annu of an average annual salary. That's just the part that he's erasing, not the full scale of the debt. So he, he, they will owe him big time, and he knows it. Costs him nothing, saves them big and now they owe him. This right here is why you always have somebody turn in their keys and their access codes on the day that you let them go. This master is learning the hard way and it builds us to number, to building block number three brings us there, or excuse me, to number four. This last building block to the story is the surprising one. Often the, the parables do end in a surprise, leave us wondering, where, how did we get here? What's this all about? And boy, this is a surprise I wasn't ready for. The manager, gets commended? The truly surprising thing about the story is where it ends. I, I'm expecting the master to show up with armed guards and have this guy thrown into prison if not killed. What he did was selfish and crooked. That's true. I think up to this point in the story, because this isn't the first parable we've covered, I'm also expecting this to be one of those parables where you learn from what not to do. Right? This is the, the contrast kind of thing where you're given the bad guy, the guy who's not in the kingdom, and you learn from his mistakes so you can run the other way and, and straight through the open gates of the kingdom. That's what I'm expecting at this point. And then at the end of this story, you learn, no, this is the good guy. For Jesus' purposes, this is the guy that we're to learn from. Did you notice that? 
Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. It's as if he comes to him and just essentially says, touche. Well played. I see what you did there. So, so now you decide to actually take some personal ownership over the job that you've been given. Of course, you're not wasting it anymore. You're just stealing it at this point. But, but I, I see what you did there. And he pats him on the back, essentially. This guy is the one we're supposed to learn from. As if Jesus is saying, you want to understand and live for my kingdom? Well, take a page out of this manager's book. He was wasteful. Then he was crafty. He ripped off the rich man and lived to tell about it. Now go and do likewise. That's how the story goes. So what does this story mean? What's Jesus trying to teach us here? Friends, this is another one of these places where we got to walk really carefully. We have, to, we have to tread lightly here, watch ourselves at every step. But if we do, when we do, I actually think the point is pretty straightforward and very helpful. I think first, a word of caution is important. Parables don't mean anything we want them to mean. Jonathan and I have been saying that over and over throughout this series. You have to be real careful what you bring to a parable and what you take from it. Because these are not like, like a good novel or a good movie where the whole point is to evoke something in you, but you run with it in the direction that you want to. It's just a good story. You're going to relate to it or resonate with it in different ways, but, but that, that shouldn't be the same from first person to person. It doesn't have to be. These stories are not like that. These are teaching tools. They're designed for very specific purposes by a specific teacher who wants to do something specific in you by them. So when we come to one of these parables, we always have to stop and ask from the context, what is this teacher teaching these people through this story? That helps us to separate out details that are supposed to mean something to us and details that aren't. Details we're supposed to learn from, emulate, or run away from, and details that are there just to fill out the story so that it makes sense overall. I think it's, th- th- remembering that, that this is how the parables work is as important for this parable, maybe more so than any of the other ones we've looked at so far. Yes, this manager gets a pat on the back. He is commended overall, but Jesus still calls him a dishonest manager. Jesus isn't celebrating his, his character here. That's no compliment. It's no term of endearment. That's a word of judgment. That means it's not a call here, this parable and the story, how it unfolds. It's not a call to cut corners where you can cut them. It's not a call to cheat on your taxes if you can get away with it. It isn't a call to sneak away with the post-it pads from the office when no one's looking. It's not celebrating a, a sort of Robin Hood style attack against the man, robbing the rich to feed the poor. That, that's just not what's going on here. Not every detail makes a point. And the ones that do make the point that Jesus wants them to make. So, so what is it? What does the story mean? Well, friends, here was a man who knew what was coming and acted accordingly. That's what Jesus praises. This shrewd manager, dishonest manager, the manager that, that ripped off the rich guy and got away with it, what he's commended for ultimately is his shrewdness. He looked into the future, he saw what was coming, he acted accordingly, and that's what Jesus wants us learning from him. His his view of the future didn't just affect what he did, it controlled what he did. He grabbed his situation by the horn, so to speak, and just shrewdly went right after it. That's what he's commended for. 
I believe the key is actually what Jesus says in verse eight. The key to knowing that's what he's doing here is in verse eight. Jesus says, after, after noting that the master commends the dishonest manager for shrewdness, Jesus then says, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I think this, this right here is the key to understanding what he's wanting us to get. The sons of this world are those who live as if this world is everything. As if what you see now around you is what is. You're born, you live, you die, and in the meantime, you do what you can do to make the most of it. You take as much as you can get, as much power, as much prestige, as much pleasure and as much wealth. You take what you can get out of it, you squeeze it out of it, and then make the most of your situation. They get that, sons of this world do, and that's why they act the way they do. This guy's not a good guy, but he's a son of this world dealing with his own kind, with his own generation, by the principles they share in common. He's looking at what's coming. He puts his money where his mouth is. And Jesus is saying, the sons of light don't often do that. I'm not like they should. The sons of light should be a little more like this guy. Not that they should adopt his principles and rip people off wherever they can get away with it. They should be more like him in his shrewdness in a laser-like focus on what's coming and in a relentless attention to a life now in that light. They should put their money where their mouth is. Here's the way one New Testament scholar summed it up. He, talking about this dishonest manager, is indeed a son of this world, but he's more prudent in planning for the only future he's concerned about than the typical religious person is in planning for his eternal future with God. Can you see the point now? I hope the point's clear because I want to spend the minutes we've got left trying to apply this point to us to see how this story is meant to challenge us. All the parables are. They're put here to, to, to confront us, to again, hold a mirror up to us so that we can see ourselves in them, so that we can evaluate our lives in light of the principles of God's kingdom and orient ourselves to him, to what he's told us is true, to what he's told us is, is coming. Now, the challenge for us here is that Jesus doesn't actually spell out the application he wants us to, to take from this story. He just says, the sons of light should be more like this guy. The sons of light should take a more ruthless, rigorous accounting of what's coming by their own principles, by what I've told you about the kingdom, and then should more rigorously apply that to the choices they make right now. That leaves us to ask for ourselves, what has he already told us about the sons of light? What do his people, God's children, expect from the future? And how does what we expect from the future show up now? This story is challenging us to think through what we've learned from Jesus about what's coming and then to evaluate our lives now in that light. And that's what I want to do with the 15 minutes I've got left. One of the most recent parables that, that I think it's reasonable to think Jesus has in his mind when he tells this one and then doesn't feel the need to flesh it all the way out for everybody is one we considered just a few weeks ago together from Luke chapter 12. Does anybody remember the parable of the rich fool? Anybody out there remember that one? A few of you do? So the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, I think it's helpful for you to go ahead and turn over there. I, I think 
that parable sets this one up beautifully. So I want to use that parable and what Jesus says after it to try to drive in the, the, the analysis this parable is meant to help us with in our own lives for right now. So, so flip back over to chapter 12. I'll remind you of the parable as you're flipping over there. The parable of the rich fool starts with a guy who did everything right. He managed his crops well. He got the seed in the ground at the right time. The weather went his way and he yielded a harvest he didn't even expect. It was way bigger than he was looking for. So big even that he decides, I'm gonna tear down these old barns that I have, which can't contain everything that I've now got. I'll build bigger barns so I can keep it all for myself. And then I'll have everything I need to rest. My life is set from here on out. I can relax, I can eat and drink and be merry. That's what he says to himself with his wealth. And Jesus exposes it all for folly. At the end of that parable, God confronts this man. Fool, verse 20 of chapter 12 says, this night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This rich fool, his eyes were on one future, a future where he has everything he needs already where he keeps it all for himself and where he gets to enjoy relaxation, ease, and pleasure from now on. That was the future he had imagined for himself. He didn't see himself standing before the God who gave him life, before the God who was the source of every breath he'd ever taken, the God who sent the rain that watered the crops that sprang up for him, the God behind every good thing he'd ever enjoyed. He didn't, he didn't see himself standing before that God. That future was not on his radar. That's why he's a fool. He didn't see that his life was even then on the way out. And then just a few verses later, after this gripping parable, Jesus explains what it means to be rich toward God, to live with a future defined not within the limits of this world and what we might be able to squeeze out of it. Skip down a little bit further in Luke chapter 12. Jesus warns his disciples, don't seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried. Don't be like this rich fool who's only focused on what he can build up for himself now and either feels great about it when it goes well or, or, or is worried about it when it's going poorly. Don't be like that, he says. For all the nations of the world, think sons of this world from Luke chapter 16. All the nations of this world, uh, they seek after these things. Your father knows you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Friends, I think these verses are in the background of Luke chapter 16. These are the verses the sons of light, the children of God should understand. These are the verses that should shape what we see when we look to the future and rolling that back should define how we interact with the world right now. So if that's our horizon, if these verses define what we expect, then, then how should it affect us now? I think there are two questions for us in this. Here's question number one. Do you use your resources as if you know 
that this world is passing away. Do you use your resources as if you know that this world is passing away? In other words, as if you get what the rich fool missed, what the nations of this world can't see, what the sons of this world aren't accounting for, that this world isn't enough. It's passing away. The sons of this world, the nations of this world, that that language that Jesus has used refers to a perspective on life as if this world is ultimate. Pagan spirituality, pagan religion of the time of Israel's neighbors and now of, of the early Christians' neighbors in ancient Rome and in other countries around them, that was their orientation to the world. It's everything. Everything plays out here. If the world is ultimate, it makes sense that you'd apply yourself to acquiring and building and protecting and enjoying as much as you can while you can. On that view of the world, that's the right way to use your shrewdness. By all means, apply yourself there. But the sons of light, the children of God, they know that this world isn't actually ultimate. Nothing we enjoy here is ours to keep. Whatever we build for ourselves here amounts to what one author has called a sandcastle and a rising tide. It might look great. Every detail might be exactly what you wanted for it. It might be the envy of everybody who walks past and looks at it, but the tide is rising. And when you get up in the morning, it's gone. Luke's gospel is full of Jesus' teachings on the importance of this world. This point is not, to, be, is not, is not to, to, to convince you that this world doesn't matter. It's precious because God made it. It's full of his glory. It's full of precious people made in his image whose lives matter to him and should matter to us. That's, that's something that's clear and consistent throughout Luke. But Christians also know that this world is no home. And that helps us resist the temptation to make it one. To use our shrewdness to build our lives here and now as if what we own or consume could possibly make us safe or happy? Do you spend your resources as if this world is passing away? Friends, this is so difficult for us. We are surrounded by pressures that are forming us into people who want more now. These pressures form us into people who stay on the prowl, who are shrewdly building wealth, building personal brands, building more and more opportunities for pleasure, people who aim our resources at these targets with the kind of relentless and laser-like focus Jesus is calling for here. Do you know the prowl I'm talking about? Maybe you decide it'd be good to have something, anything from, from like a basic accessory, a new watch or something, a new purse, to a new outfit or a new gadget or something new for your house or something bigger like a new car or a new house. You know the prowl I'm talking about. Then you throw yourself into the quest, the product reviews, the comparisons, the price checking. You know the rabbit hole, don't you? That kind of rabbit hole can bring out of us the same kind of tenacity and shrewdness that produced the Sistine Chapel, that produced Anna Karenina, that produced Hamilton, or fill in your favorite work of cultural art. That same kind of Focus, applying all of the creativity and power God has put into us to to getting something, getting our hands around it. Of course, we have to live our lives. We need food, we need shelter, we need clothing, we need transportation. It's always better not to pay more than you have to. But there's something more in that prowl than just getting our needs taken care of, isn't it? 
there's a shrewdness in it that says something about our functional view of the future. Maybe the epitome of, of the kind of this worldly shrewdness that we've been talking about is, is upon us with the dawn of Black Friday. It's coming, friends, this week. I saw recently that Americans are projected to spend more than ever this year, roughly $150 billion chasing the incredible once a year, limited time only, quantities available, limited quantities available sort of stuff that comes around each year around this time. In a normal weekend, this would bring the shrewd out in droves to the bricks and mortar, mortar stores full of door busters. Have you ever seen Cool Springs exit off I-65 at this time of year? It's normal to have two lanes of traffic all the way from the mall, all the way back down into the mainstream of I-65 moving, if you're lucky, inch by inch by inch towards parking lots with no room for you. All for the prospect of deals, deals, deals. I wonder though, I wonder if you've ever noticed, if you've ever found yourself in that crawl and you're inching your way down that exit ramp, maybe more slowly than you normally have, I wonder if you've ever noticed a small square of fencing in an island of grass created by a fork in that exit. On that island of grass, surrounded by concrete and moving metal, rests a small private cemetery. It's no doubt a relic of the time when that area was all open farmland. Probably some family farm set aside that spot on the hill as the burial plot for the family. What remains of it now is not much, just four or five stones, best I can count as I pass by. One big tree that they're, that, they're, that they're put next to, some basic chain link around it and a bunch of vines that have grown so over that chain link that soon enough you won't even know what's there. You won't be able to see it for much longer. But the statement that it makes to the living, to those of us who are on that prowl for more, and for better, for one-of-a-kind deals on the slippery path to happiness is a statement that the children of light note well. Even if we score on every doorbuster, year after year, this right here is where it ends. Don't waste your shrewdness on a race that ends here. The children of light know better. Do you spend your resources as if this world is passing away? There's one final question that I want to leave you with. This question takes us, I think, even to, to the beating heart of this parable and what Jesus means to do with it. Do you spend your resources as if only God's kingdom lasts forever? Do you spend your resources as if only God's kingdom lasts forever. The main point of the parable is, is actually a challenge to us to be more shrewd. To be more careful, more calculating, more intentional, more fully absorbed in seeking after his kingdom. The rich fool, he padded his account until he could kick back and relax. The nations of this world, they stress over what they'll eat and drink and wear. But the children of light, God's children, they put all their hopes on his kingdom. What they know is coming. Their treasure is in heaven, Luke chapter 12, where moth and rust can't destroy. And that's why Jesus says to them in that chapter, 
Seek his kingdom first. All these things will be added to you. Seek his kingdom. And I think that's what he has in his mind now in this parable. Be shrewd like that guy in seeking this kingdom. It's not going to end. Whatever you invest here, it's forever. Where else can you get that kind of return? Do you really believe that? Verse nine is definitely tricky, but I think it's the key. I think it's crucial for the point that Jesus is making. This is back in, verse, in chapter 16. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. When you hear unrighteous wealth, don't think money that you stole somehow. Don't think that it's a statement that money is bad on its own. This is just a shorthand for money. Something like cold, hard cash or filthy lucre. And Jesus isn't saying to spread it around so that everybody will owe you like the sons of the world might do. Makes sense for them to do. Doesn't make sense for the sons of light to do that. His focus at the end of the verse is on the eternal dwellings, on an unending kingdom. So what's he talking about? Friends, what I believe he's calling us to do here is to leverage our resources for the work of his kingdom now. A work that is the gospel going out through local churches all around the world. It's a call to spend money, for example, and time, for example, now, so that more and more people will join you in that kingdom that never ends. You're making friends through your investment in the work of the gospel as it goes out through churches all over the world. You're making friends that you won't meet till heaven but who will be ready to receive you in the eternal dwellings when you get there. Do you think that's actually happening right now? That right now through the work of simple local churches just like ours in places flung all over the world, people are hearing the word that doesn't return void and trusting it for themselves. Do you believe that those people who do so will live on in God's presence and in yours feasting with joy forever? Do you believe that the, that the little bit of time you have on this earth and whatever resources God puts in your disposal can actually help with that? Because if you do, well, as one person put it, think about your receipts as a kind of exam, kind of examination results that reveals what you believe about the future and what you believe is most valuable in it. This, friends, is the model Jesus has given to us. He lived his life with a laser-like focus from, from the very beginning. He did only what his father told him to do. He was obedient all the way to the cross, to, even to death on a cross. And Hebrews tells us that he did this, he endured the cross, he faced it down, knowing that it would be shameful and painful for the joy that was set before him because he was looking at the future. Jesus had a future he could see, he could taste it. He lived for it and then he died for it. That future controlled him and now invites us with him to walk where he has walked. Jesus is our model for shrewdness ultimately. And he calls us to follow him. 
Do you spend your resources as if this kingdom is worth it? As if it's the only thing that lasts? I want to pray now that the Lord will give us the confidence in what he's told us to make it so. Let's pray. Father, we, we know ourselves to be too often taken in by the empty promises of this world, even as those who own your name, who pledge our allegiance to Jesus, who trust in him as our only comfort in life and in death, we know that even we are all too often taken in by the empty promises of this world. And we know that our infatuation with this world often keeps us from being the gift to this world you've called us to be, from being open-handed with our resources to those who need it, from setting aside our interests so that we can advance the interests of others, from leveraging every conversation and every dollar that we can to see the message of Jesus go out around the world. We know that you've called us to this world with a perspective from another one. And we ask you that you would overcome what indwelling sin remains in us that trips us up on this journey. That you would overcome the temptations that so often turn our heads. And that you would give us a vision of this future, this glorious future that captures our hearts and controls our lives. We pray that for ourselves as individuals and and for our community. That in our church you would make us a culture of future focused, people loving, gospel trusting Christians who tell the truth, not just through what we say in our words, what we profess to believe, but through what choices we make. We pray that you would do this work because it will take a miracle and we trust it to you. In Jesus' name, amen.